This is the Morning Press, a BrainIron.com production. Here's 11 minutes or so of news for today, Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. Actually, you know what? Here's a look at the weather. The Republican Party is approaching its 170th birthday. Founded in 1854 as a response to the Kansas-Nebraska Act that effectively ended the Missouri Compromise and allowed for the possibility that slavery would expand into the two new territories, the party has endured through a civil war, near-total ideological realignment, and nothing much in the way of national legislative relevance from the time of FDR's New Deal in 1933 until they took control of the House in 1995. They have transformed from the party of Lincoln in favor of a strong federal government opposed to slavery, skeptical of claims of state sovereignty, to the party that opposed FDR's great expansion of the welfare state, hemorrhaging popular support for a generation before gaining it back as Democrats fractured along the fault line of the civil rights movement, retrenching their base of power in the South before taking advantage of the economic downturn of the 1970s to usher in the era of Reagan. The support Reagan enjoyed can be attributed to the same forces that sent Republicans into the wilderness after FDR's rise to power. Broad popular dissatisfaction with the state of the economy shifted support from Republicans to Democrats in FDR's time, from Democrats to Republicans in Reagan's, and from Democrats and many institutional Republicans to the Tea Party populism that morphed into the trumpeting that makes up the Republican base today. These are extremely broad generalizations that forego whole libraries of nuance, obviously. But the point is that the Republican Party has maintained as an identifiable American political institution for nearly two centuries, in no small part because of its flexibility, its ability to adapt to the changing moods of the American people, to be ideologically transformed by its changing membership just to survive. It has, in short, responded to the needs of the market. Republican in name only is a charge often leveled against party members who do not adhere to whatever issue someone has decided is foundational to the party's ethos. But the truth is that the party has survived, essentially, in name only, precisely because it has not had a consistent ethos by which it will live or die. But we are the party of limited government and individual freedom, some Republicans will no doubt insist. But any honest understanding of who has constituted the party through the years and what they have actually done with power when they have had it makes claims to a grand unified Jeffersonian cum Lincolnian cum Martin Luther Kingian ideological heritage rather incoherent. This is not stated to differentiate the Republicans from the Democrats, clearly, The modern Democratic Party bears little ideological resemblance to the party of Andrew Jackson, and has similarly survived in name only, thanks to the same adaptability exhibited by the GOP. The structure of American government as established in our founding documents all but demands a two-party system, it would seem, and the Democrats and Republicans have been the ongoing manifestations of that reality for a very long time. It is this very ability to become whatever they need to be to survive that makes it foolish to assume that the parties will not persist. But the events of yesterday, February 6th, 2024, look to me like one of the most important days in the long history of the GOP, 
and a possible series of signs that the party's historical plasticity has hardened into something much more brittle. The U.S. House of Representatives failed to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on Tuesday in the first of two dramatic failures by Speaker Mike Johnson to secure political victories for the Republican majority. The attempted impeachment, which would have been just the second impeachment of a cabinet secretary in history, was thwarted by three Republican defections and the surprise arrival of Democratic Representative Al Green of Texas, who showed up in a wheelchair and scrubs fresh from the hospital following abdominal surgery to vote against the measure. The vote deadlocked at 2.15 to 2.15 until one Republican switched his vote in a procedural move to allow the impeachment to come up again later, rather than suffer permanent defeat in the moment. This can really only be understood as a stunning defeat for Speaker Johnson, who clearly believed he had the votes for impeachment before the issue was called. When Steve Scalise, who is currently out of Washington recovering from blood cancer treatment, returns to Congress next week, the House will likely take up the issue again with one additional pro-impeachment vote. It's worth pointing out, though, that the special election to fill ousted Republican George Santos's seat in New York's 3rd Congressional District is taking place on Tuesday, February 13th, the result of which will obviously have a bearing on the size of the precarious Republican majority, and which makes any further delays of the impeachment vote risky. Immediately following the failed impeachment of Mayorkas, Speaker Johnson's attempt to pass a standalone $17.6 billion aid package for Israel was also unsuccessful. Because fiscal conservatives stood in the way of bringing the measure up for a vote by simple majority, Johnson used a procedural move that required a two-thirds vote for passage, in addition to the 14 Republicans who held out because the bill included no so-called pay-fors or budgetary offsets. 166 Democrats voted against, bringing the tally to 250 to 180, well short of the needed two-thirds majority. President Joe Biden had announced he would veto the bill regardless, insisting instead on a bipartisan package of foreign aid and national security spending that does not appear to be coming out of the House anytime soon. Johnson saw the standalone Israel package as a way to score political points against Biden and the Democrats, but the inability to even send it across the Capitol to the Senate will have squashed those aims. These were humiliating back-to-back defeats for Republican leadership, the sort of failure that one does not usually get to see on the House floor, because such votes don't usually get called unless the result is certain. Both of these measures were explicitly designed to inflict maximum political pain on Biden and the Democrats, and both backfired spectacularly, in part suggesting that Johnson is both ineffectual and incompetent, but perhaps revealing something deeper that this slim Republican majority cannot even govern itself. Also on Tuesday in Congress, Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell acknowledged to reporters that the border security bill that Oklahoma Senator James Lankford had negotiated with Democrats was effectively dead and would never become law. Democrat Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had hoped to pass the bill and force Republicans in the House to reject it, but McConnell made clear that because it faced certain defeat in the House, Republicans in the Senate would not help push it through. Brief aside to Speaker Mike Johnson, Mitch McConnell is right down the hall whenever you need advice on how not to score points in your own goal. 
Many observers believed the Lankford bill represented the strongest bipartisan border security package to come before Congress in a very long time. The Wall Street Journal wrote, quote, By any honest reckoning, this is the most restrictive migrant legislation in decades, end quote, and would have been seen as a win for Republicans and other border hawks in almost any other conceivable context, but is deemed unpassable because Donald Trump made it clear that it would be a gift to Joe Biden. Trump's disdain for the bill and Lankford's role in crafting it has led him to deny that he endorsed Lankford in his 2022 Senate run, which Trump very much did, in September of 22, concluding a lengthy statement with the following, quote, It is my great honor to give James Lankford my complete and total endorsement, end quote. All of the congressional kerfuffle was happening in the hours after a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia unanimously ruled that the gravitational center of the Republican Party, former President Donald Trump, does not, in fact, enjoy absolute immunity from prosecution for actions taken while president. This is in the context of federal charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Trump has one week to ask the Supreme Court to overturn the ruling, which he is expected to do. Perhaps his lawyers can simply drop off the necessary paperwork tomorrow, as on Thursday, the Supreme Court will be hearing arguments as to whether or not the Colorado Supreme Court was on solid constitutional grounds when it ruled that Trump is ineligible to run for president on the basis that he violated the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Also yesterday, the Republican primary election in Nevada took place, a literally meaningless exercise in which zero delegates were at stake. Instead, delegates will be awarded following the party-run caucuses on Thursday. The Nevada GOP has insisted that the 2021 law that the Nevada state legislature passed to institute state-run primaries makes the vote less secure and less representative of Republican wishes, and barred any candidate who participates in the primary from appearing on caucus ballots. In effect, this means that Donald Trump is running essentially unopposed in the caucuses, while Nikki Haley was on the ballot in the primary yesterday. Haley won the most votes of any actual person, but was far outpaced by none of these candidates, an option that has been open to Nevadans since 1975. At least 44,000 people, about 63% of those who showed up, voted for none of these candidates, while Haley ended up with about 30% of the vote. Finally, and fittingly, the day ended with news that the head of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, is planning to resign her position after the South Carolina primary takes place on February 24th. The New York Times is reporting that Trump will be endorsing North Carolina RNC Chairman Michael Watley to succeed McDaniel in the role, a person who has endorsed just about all of Trump's claims of mass election fraud and is described as a, quote, stop the steal guy, end quote. All of this happened in just a few short hours on Tuesday. It was a day that, for me, revealed how mysteriously shrouded is the road to a post-Trump future for the Republican Party, and what it will look like when we get there.
Whatever one's position on the Trump question, we can all at least acknowledge that his future as the gravitational center of the Republican Party is limited to, at the very outside, the next eight years. And that's assuming a loss in 2024 that permits him to continue to run as the president in exile all the way through the 2028 presidential election cycle, at which point he will either secure the presidency until beyond his 86th birthday, or have to survive that long to run again in 2032. I guess we shouldn't put it past him. The alternative possibility is that he wins this year and, though he would no doubt make some sort of absurd novel claim to being permitted a third term, would be constitutionally forbidden from running again. Whatever the future holds, he is a person of some significant age, subject to various laws of man and nature, that will eventually mean that the world will go on without him, no doubt much to his surprise, sooner or later. The cascading series of chaotic events within the GOP universe yesterday suggests that when he's gone, whenever that is, there won't be an organizing principle to hold the party together any longer, because he is all they have left. Republicans tried to impeach a cabinet secretary, essentially on policy disagreements, and failed because three of their own members believed that whatever Mayorkas's shortcomings, high crimes and misdemeanors, were not among them. That the accusations against him are related to alleged abdication of his border enforcement duties, and that Republicans nearly universally profess the belief that there is a crisis of existential import on the southern border. And that on the day of the impeachment vote, the strongest border enforcement legislation in decades was scuttled because they refused to give President Joe Biden a win in an election year is an absurd series of contradictions that you can only hold in your head at once if if you remember that Trump is at the center. Their further calls for Biden to simply act with executive authority is a total abdication of congressional responsibility, not to mention yet another example of total incoherence with what is usually understood to be the conservative position, that executive orders are the domain of despotic authoritarians, and that the law must arise from the people's house. Not to put too fine a point on it, but the Republicans are standing there, stamping their feet, demanding that a Democratic president rule via the pen and executive order, instead of passing legislation that would have been seen as a ridiculous pipe dream just four months ago, when they demanded precisely this sort of a law. Never mind that they control the House and the Senate and the presidency under Trump during his first two years and failed to come anywhere near a piece of legislation this strong on the border. What do you want, Republicans? Border security! When do you want it? Never! Again, this all makes sense only so long as you remember that the only thing holding it all together is Trump, and all he ever wants to do is yell about stuff and see himself on television. That they tried to break out aid for Israel into a separate package to show voters that Biden and the Democrats don't actually care about Israel, only to be unable to move it forward because the Republican majority couldn't find a way to pay for it, and then tried to blame it on the Democrats anyway, is another example of how little ability and interest they have in actually governing. They have become so accustomed to and adept at blocking the work of government that they cannot even succeed in embarrassing their democratic rivals with a doomed piece of virtue-signaling legislation. 
The fury at Ronna McDaniel by Trump loyalists is just condemnation of Trump by proxy, though they'd never see it that way. McDaniel has been utterly loyal to Trump, and complaints from inside the GOP that the party has done nothing but lose and fail to meet expectations since 2016 are both perfectly accurate and hilariously flailing in their attempts to find someone to blame besides the person who became the party's raison d'etre that same year. And it may not seem like it at first glance, but even the results from the pointless Republican primary in Nevada yesterday point to the same ticking time bomb at the heart of the Trump GOP. More than 25,000 committed Republicans showed up to vote in a meaningless poll simply to signal their contempt for Trump. The headline is that none of these candidates walloped Nikki Haley, and that's embarrassing for her. But the real story is that Trump's ceiling continues to get lower, even as his floor remains precisely as sturdy as his good health. All of this as Trump argues that a president should be permitted to do anything without consequence, a claim of impenetrable and absolute executive authority that would have had conservatives stocking up on ammunition and packing go-bags during the Obama administration. It all points to something that is incredibly obvious, but for whatever reason didn't really crystallize in my mind until late yesterday, after the fifth or sixth news notification that chaos was afoot in the Republican ranks. There is no Republican Party without Donald Trump. He is the sole organizing principle that remains. When he is gone, what will be left of them? They didn't even write a party platform in 2020. They saw no need to debate the various things that the party might stand for, or what it believed in, or what its goals might be. They had just inflicted upon all of us, and themselves endured, a four-year presidency run by Twitter push notification, based largely on the passing moods of the country's most ardent cable news talk show watcher. How do you construct a party platform on those constantly shifting sands? Not that it would have mattered had they even tried, because whatever Donald Trump wanted was the platform. Whatever he most recently posted to social media is the only party directive that matters, and the last four years are the inevitable result. In 2016, South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham called Donald Trump an, quote, interloper and a demagogue of the greatest proportion. The bottom line is I believe Donald Trump would be an absolute, utter disaster for the Republican Party and destroy conservatism as we know it. We would get wiped out, and it would take generations to overcome a Trump candidacy, end quote. Of course, Trump ended up winning, and Graham uh, came around on the Trump question. But I think Lindsey was actually precisely correct. It's just that he didn't recognize that winning in 2016 would only draw out the process and give Trump far more time to hollow out the grand old party, to toss out any ideological or ethical or political beliefs to make room for his mere presence. Graham told John Dickerson that he preferred Ted Cruz, because even if Cruz was a sort of poison to the Republican Party, at least one might find an antidote and perhaps recover from a poisoning. Trump, he said, was more akin to getting shot, which would kill the party in one go. This was where he was wrong. The Republicans might have survived a Trump candidacy that was turned back that November. They all expected him to lose. Trump included, after all.
Then, the GOP might have had a chance to figure out a way forward while they still had some idea of who they were and what they believed in. No longer. All that remains is Trump, but he's not going to be around forever. Where does that leave the GOP? I don't know. The parties have shown that they can persist through all manner of turmoil and change, if in name only. But it's not at all clear to me that any major American political party has ever before so completely taken on the character of one man and lived to tell the tale. It's easy to forget in the moment nearly nine years into the Trumpening as we are, but it's worth remembering just how aberrant Trump really is in American politics. There are those that will argue that he was an inevitability, that the character of the Republican Party had degraded to the point that it all but begged for a Trump-like figure to take it over. Even granting that, which I don't, there remains the undeniable fact that there is no such thing as a Trump-like figure. There is only the one. My suspicion is that the Republican Party, as we have known it since the second founding, will basically cease to exist when Trump does. Evangelical Trumpism, or whatever you want to call it, will faction off into a sort of reactionary populism headed by media figures like Tucker Carlson and Charlie Kirk, an angry 20% or so of Americans doing nothing but standing athwart the culture and whining MAGA at it to each other. In the meantime, the detritus of the Republican Party will attempt to coalesce into a sort of anti-identitarian resistance to democratic uniparty overreach, to little effect, another half-century of wilderness wandering for the classically liberal conservatives who were always better observers of government than effective wielders of its power. Or, maybe, Trump will go, and it will all, somehow, more or less return to normal but I doubt it. Trump didn't start the culture war, and he's certainly not going to end it, either by winning or by leaving the stage. His contribution was to help make the culture war all-consuming. He convinced millions of us that nothing but the culture war mattered, that nothing besides choosing a side for or against him mattered. When he's gone, which as a reminder, is in fact inevitable. The culture war will rage on, but without its loudest and proudest antagonist, without its primary organizing principle, the one we called forth. Lindsey Graham saw this clearly in 2016, when he said that the party was doomed. Quote, There's a pathway forward in the Mideast. I don't see one right now for the Republican Party. Mideast politics, to me, seem to be less of a mess right now than the Republican Party, and that's saying a hell of a lot, end quote. Yesterday, a quick series of news stories about Republican Party dysfunction all boiled down to one thing. Donald Trump is the Republican Party, and the Republican Party is Donald Trump. What will fill that void when he's gone? What will we call forth next? That's the weather from here. How's it look out your window? The Morning Press is a production of the BrainIron.com multinational media empire. Please direct comments and complaints to brainironpodcast at gmail.com. 
For a transcript of today's episode and links to the stories referenced, find The Morning Press at brainiron.substack.com, where, if you would like to support this and the other podcasting and blogging endeavors of the brainiron.com media empire, you can also become a paying subscriber. If you can think of anyone else who might enjoy whatever it is we're up to around here, please consider sharing. Thanks, and barring the sudden onset of the inevitable, we'll talk to you tomorrow. The proceeding was created with 100% human content.